Today, we are uh, continuing with part two in a series called Waiting Room. Uh, we launched this a couple weeks ago, and if you weren't here for part one, I definitely recommend that you go back and um, listen to part one. You can find it on our website at faithcommunityfellowship.com and our media player there, or you can find it on our podcast. And if you, how many of you listen to podcasts occasionally or regularly, okay? If you haven't discovered podcasting and you're still listening to CDs, I won't even ask how many people are still listening to CDs. Or you're still, even, you're still listening exclusively to radio in your car. And I'm not saying you can't listen to radio ever, Bill. I'm not saying never, I'm not saying never listen to Star 97.7. I'm not saying never. I'm just saying if exclusively that's all you're listening to. Mostly in the evenings you want to be listening to that anyway. Um, oh, man. I'm, how many more people can I... Um, I'm not joking though, actually, you, if you haven't discovered podcasting, you are missing out on some opportunities to enrich your life through that content. I've been a podcast subscriber for several years and I've listened to countless hours of podcasts, sometimes for entertainment, sometimes uh, for personal growth, for leadership development. Um, and it seems like I'm talking to people all the time who are still, for some reason, resistant to podcasting, like they're somehow scared of it. it, it like, if, what if Google finds out? Google knows anyway. <laughs> they know exactly where you are right now. They know how much money you plan to put in the donation thing at lunch today. They know. They know how much brisket you're going to eat. <laughs> so you have a history. What will I do? What, 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 what will I do with my eight-track tapes? I don't know. What if, what, if, what, if the, what if the cloud goes away? You know, what is, what is the cloud anyway? I don't understand it. kind of scares me. I don't, I don't want to be a part of any technology I don't understand. Okay, then I'll collect all your phones then. I don't, um, Bill, <laughs> later. Some of you have taken me up on my offer to give you a podcast tutorial. It takes about 30 seconds, and now you're making good use of your commute time, aren't you? I've had these conversations with you. You're using commute time to get good content into your soul. So all that to say, I recommend you go back and listen to... Uh, part one. Today, I want to jump in the deep end, because it is part two. I mean, come on. Let's not waste any time. Let's get into the good stuff. I want to talk about an idea that is one of the most profound truths in all of the teachings of Christianity. If you aren't a Christian, if you're here just checking it out, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. You're definitely not a religious person, and after you've listened to this, you think to yourself, well, I thought they were crazy. Now I know I knew something was off, because this is just crazy. That's okay. If you are a Christian and you listen to what I'm about to say and your response is, I've been around church for a while, I've never heard this before, you must be making this up. That's fine. Maybe I'll convince you uh, otherwise. Maybe I won't because this is one of those things that you've either bumped into or you haven't. And it doesn't make for a great bumper sticker. You won't see it on a flowery meme on Facebook. It doesn't make for popular lyrics for Christian radio. What I'm talking about is this. Through the years as a pastor, I've run into some remarkable people who were facing extraordinary circumstances, challenges and adversity in their families, in their finances, in their health, and they came to a place where they were able and willing to say and to recognize that the best thing for them to do was to receive their adversity, to receive their negative circumstances as if it was coming from the hand of God. 
That is, instead of trying to get God to do something, instead of trying to get God to rise up against something that's going on in your life, instead of trying to get God to address this thing, they came to the conclusion on their own or through a set of circumstances or if they read something or someone taught them, and somehow they arrived at this conclusion that they are to approach this adversity, this challenge, this loss, this disappointment, this season of life, as if it was actually coming from the hand of God. Hang with me. I'm not saying that these things are necessarily coming from God. Let's just make this really clear. I'm talking about accepting them as if they were. So that's what we're going to talk about. And this is different. And I'm not, uh, I'm not going to ask you to do something or to make some decision that you're not ready for. I'm not even going to speak in as, a, as an authority on this because I'm really not. But I feel like I would be doing some of you in this room a disservice uh, not to introduce this idea early in this series, in this conversation about waiting room experiences. This, I believe, is the way forward. The whole series uh, is going to revolve around this question, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when you find yourself in a set of circumstances and there's really no way to fix it? Ever been there? Ever f- okay. There's no way to change things. There's no way to escape it. There's, there's no apparent way forward and there's, there doesn't seem to be a way out. That it's, this is really just the way it is and it appears this is the way it's going to be. Nothing's going to change. It could be relationally. Maybe you're in a marriage and it's not going great. I mean, it's not, it's not awful, but it's not what you'd hoped it would be. Maybe there's something going on with one of your teenage kids or one of your adult kids or your dream for them isn't coming true and their dream for their own life isn't coming true and it doesn't look like it can come true. It might be something um, financially, it could be something professionally, it could be something physically, something with your health that you have to deal with and you have something going on that isn't going to kill you, but there isn't a cure either. They can treat it, but they can't cure it and it's just something you have to live with and it's just the way it is. Here's the thing about the dream that isn't coming true. Here's about the, dream, the thing about the dream that can't come true. Maybe it's because of the direct uh, result of some choices that you made somewhere in your past. Maybe. Or maybe it has nothing to do with that. Maybe it's a result of someone else's choices. And it's just the way it is. And you look into the future, and the future is different from the way you envisioned your future being. And you're having a waiting room experience, and you're kind of being forced to wait, and it seems like there's nothing you can do right now, so what do you do when there's nothing you can do? Our natural response is pretty much uh, the same. It's fairly universal. Um, Some of us get there quicker than others, but eventually we get angry. We get angry with ourselves. We get angry with the people around us. We get angry with God. Sometimes there's a temptation to just run from the whole thing. If you're in a difficult marriage, the temptation is to cut and run, you know, maybe again. Or, or you can start another family. It'll be better next time. We're always tempted to give up and give in. Maybe you're tempted to drink it all away and to develop a habit of some kind to ease the pain and to and a, create a little escape for you for a little while. Um, and that's not really the healthy thing to do. You know that's not the healthy thing to do. You know that. You figure that out. And you, you know that trying to, sometimes trying to solve your problem is only going to create another problem. That trying to ease this tension is actually going to create tension somewhere else uh, in your life. So all of us have a knee-jerk reaction. Um, and, of course, we look around and we compare ourselves to other people. I mean, none of you do that, but people you know do that, Right? 
And we do, we, we fall into this, and we compare ourselves to other people, and, and we, we discover that everybody else seems to be having the family life we were supposed to have. Everybody else is having the relational success that we thought we were supposed to have. Everybody else has the perfect marriage. Everybody else has the perfect kids. Everybody else is having the career that we were supposed to have and the financial success that we were supposed to have. And we get jealous and we get resentful and ultimately we get angry. So the question remains, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do to keep from doing things that are only going to make it worse? So we said a couple weeks ago in part one, that in the midst of a waiting room experience, in those waiting room circumstances, we just assume that we'll never be happy again. We just start telling ourselves that our happiest days are behind us, that I'll never be happy again. We tell ourselves nothing good can come from this. And we tell ourselves there's no point in continuing. So uh, when we opened the scriptures a couple weeks ago, we looked at two accounts from the life of Jesus. And we discovered that actually, this is kind of a big deal for some of us, that the presence of adversity does not equal the absence of God. That there's no conflict between God loving you and God being with you or not. The way we said it in part one was that in the waiting room, God is not absent, God is not apathetic, and God is not angry. There's something in us when things aren't going our way. There's something in us when things don't work out the way we think they should. There's something in us when it looks like the future is going to look different from the way we envisioned it. There's something in us that wonders, God, where are you? And what are you doing? And why aren't you fixing this? And do you care? Do you actually love me? Are you able to do anything? We said that there's, actual, there's no actual correlation between God's apparent lack of cooperation and God's love for us. That there's no actual correlation between God's apparent lack of of cooperation and God's presence in our situation. If you're tempted to think that God doesn't exist or God doesn't care because God refused to cooperate in your circumstance, then you might also have to conclude that your parents didn't exist because they didn't always cooperate with your agenda, correct? All right, think about that. The thing that we said in part one that that was really helpful for me um, is that this This thinking that since life is dark and since some things can't be changed and since God's not answering my prayer, to somehow connect that uh, to the absence of God or to connect that to a lack of love from God is is a mistake. And part of our Western way of thinking is you and I live in a part of the world where we just think things should work out. Because of things like social media and Facebook and Instagram and and 24-hour news and all that, we are more aware than ever before of how well things are going for everyone else. Because we have this ability that previous generations didn't have to compare ourselves to others on a whole new level. And we add to that our very positive American outlook on life. When things don't go well, when things aren't wrinkle-free, we immediately throw up our hands and we're like, well, God, why are you leaving me out? Why aren't you paying attention? Why aren't you fixing this? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? So here's the thing that helps me, and I hope it helps you too. When you open up the Bible, and for me, especially when I open up the New Testament, we discover that the men and women who brought us the story of Jesus whose stories make up the foundation of our faith, they were men and women who were well acquainted with adversity. 
They were not strangers to adversity. They faced all kinds of things, yet they continued to believe. They continued to follow. And they saw and experienced all kinds of negative circumstances, but they kept moving forward in their faith and in their confidence in God. The people who carried Christianity out of the first century uh, weren't put off by adversity. They, were, they, they actually kind of expected it, I think. Jesus told them to. So they weren't thrown off by the seeming absence or activity of God in their circumstances. And somehow that fueled them in such a way that they were even more adamant about making sure that the message of Jesus made it out of the first century. Perhaps the best example of this uh, is the Apostle Paul. The reason I consider him the, arguably the best example is uh, that the Apostle Paul never met the pre-resurrection Jesus. He wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. He didn't get to walk around with Jesus and spend time with Jesus during his ministry. He didn't get to see all the miracles and listen to Jesus' teaching. Paul came to faith after the resurrection and after the, after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he came to know what he knew about Jesus mostly uh, from people who'd spent time and knew Jesus. And Paul became a follower of Jesus after he'd been a Jesus hater, if you know his story. Uh, you might know some Christians that you think should be arrested and silenced and locked away. Paul actually did that. He had, he had some of them killed. And, and he, he steps into history. The first thing we learn about him is he's a leader of this persecution of those, of those early Christians, uh, people who come to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he was the only way to their heavenly father. And we first hear of Paul when he was known as Saul. And as a Pharisee, as a, as a protector of the ways and influence of Judaism, he gets permission from the religious rulers and from the government to do whatever's necessary to shut down and imprison and torture and execute these Christians. And then right in the middle of his job as a persecutor and executor of Christians, Saul has an encounter with Jesus himself, and he became a follower of Jesus, a powerful, effective evangelist for the gospel, a church planter, an apostle, and writer of nearly half the New Testament. But just as he came to faith in Jesus, and just as he started to do some of the things that God had called him to do, just as things were getting started, something happened to the apostle Paul, and he was stricken with some kind of a physical ailment. We don't know exactly what it was uh, because they, I'm guessing they probably didn't diagnose medical conditions the same way we do today, so they didn't know maybe how to actually put this into terms we could understand. We don't know a lot about it, uh, but we, what we do know is that it wasn't going away. And somehow, it actually was a hindrance to what he believed God had called him to do. So get this. He has this come-to-Jesus moment. You've heard of the Damascus Road experience. Well, he had a literal Damascus Road experience is where the term comes from. And he turns his life around. And just as he begins to do the things that God has called him to do, he gets this physical ailment that seems to be keeping him from doing what God has called him to do. And so in his inner wrestling with God, the Apostle Paul learned a very, very valuable lesson. And his explanation of that lesson, uh, from that we get this extremely important insight uh, for the rest of us who find ourselves or will find ourselves in a waiting room experience. I've taught on this passage before, um, kind of a different context, but if you're new to church or, or to Bible study, this may be brand new to you, but um, here's what the Apostle Paul has to say about this wrestling, this inner turmoil, about this, specifically about this physical affliction that happened to him and that didn't seem to be going away. It was making it more difficult for him to do the very thing God had called him to do. So here's how he explains it. He's writing a letter to the church in Corinth, his second letter. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to start at verse 7. 
He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given, we'll stop right there. <clears throat> the little phrase in order to is a Greek word that lets us know that this is a purpose statement. There was a purpose behind this thing that he was given, this gift. Oh, and the word that's translated given is the most common kind of gift, just like we, you know, give and receive birthday gifts and gifts at Christmas or whatever. It just, it's just giving a gift. It, it implied it implied a positive thing. It wasn't a curse. It wasn't a punishment. So Paul chooses his words very carefully and very intentionally here. He says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given, okay, Paul, what were you given? What was the special gift? We can't wait to hear. I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. <clears throat> when I read this, I think, uh, Paul, you usually do a pretty good wor- job with words, usually. You're pretty good at the writing thing. Um, but I think you chose the wrong word here. I think this should be, I was cursed with a thorn. I was punished with a thorn. I was held back with a thorn. Oh, and the word thorn simply implies that this was a constant irritation. And the word torment literally means to beat somebody up or to strike with a fist. So Paul says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given the gift of a thorn that just kept beating me up day after day. And then he says, it was a messenger of Satan. Okay, stop there for a second, because this is getting weird now. Translators have struggled with what this phrase means. Some people think that somehow, maybe like in the, maybe like in the story of Job, that Satan literally caused it, and God used what Satan caused. Other people think it's a figure of speech, so um, we could maybe vote on it and land somewhere. Do you hear Yanni? Do you hear Laurel? And we can just kind of figure this out. So um, we don't know if it's a figure of speech or if it's a theological statement. What we do know, and what is absolutely clear from the text, is that the Apostle Paul saw this. He saw this thorn in his flesh as a gift with a purpose. And it wasn't going away. Some people have speculated, people have speculated, you've probably heard, if you've been around church at all and you've heard you know, authoritative Bible teachers talk about this, they've, you've probably heard something. Um, some people have speculated it might have been a form of epilepsy. And that while he was traveling and while he was teaching and while he's preaching, while he's establishing churches and while he's, uh, you know, just burning the candle at both ends and on the verge of exhaustion most of the time. And while he's trying to establish himself as an authority in the early church, you can imagine in the first century, if he had had epileptic episodes and people didn't know, or didn't understand, didn't know what to do or how to respond or what was even happening. Some people think maybe it was, it was depression. Maybe caused by the physical toll that his body uh, went through. If you read the book of Acts, he has all kinds of reasons to be depressed. Uh, Again, a clear vision from God and then all of these barriers to doing the very things that God's called him to do. You read the story of Paul and if if we went through a tenth of what he experienced, we would definitely be depressed. Some people thought it was headaches or vision issues and and he clearly had some issues with his vision Um, But maybe it was severe enough that it kept him from writing as much as he wanted to. Maybe it even caused some kind of disfigurement that made people uncomfortable around him. And we know that after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, that he was blinded for three days. Maybe there were lasting long-term effects from that experience. Some people think that maybe because of the places that he visited and the methods of travel in those days, uh, it could have been some kind of recurring malaria. We don't know. Doesn't really matter. Um... I kind of think it's on purpose that we don't know. But here's what we do know. It was painful, it was humiliating, and it was debilitating. This is the guy who's called by God in a powerful vision 
after he became a follower of Jesus, and he develops this physical condition that was painful, humiliating, and debilitating. So then Paul tells us what he did when he realized that this isn't going away. He probably came to this conclusion after consulting with his good friend Luke, who was a physician and a historian, and he did some traveling with Paul, and he served in ministry with Paul. I'm guessing maybe Luke confirmed for Paul what he already knew, that this thing isn't going away. It's not going to get any better. And when Paul tells us what he did with that news, we, we see that he did exactly what we tend to do with that kind of news. This is verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. And this isn't like I added it to my prayer list on Monday, and then I, I was thanking God for my breakfast on Tuesday, and I mentioned it. And then on Wednesday, I mentioned it one more time. Now, these were three seasons of his life where this physical condition was so unbearable that he made it the focus of his prayer life. God, I cannot continue to do what you've called me to do if you don't remove this. I can't do it anymore. I can't really be faithful to your call in my life unless you intervene and remove this from me. Three different seasons in his life. I've had enough, God. You've got to do something. Here's the interesting thing. Some of you have probably been told things like, like the reason you're not getting any better is because you don't have enough faith. Or the reason this thing in your life isn't changing is because you don't have enough faith. You've probably already picked up that I don't believe that. And the reason I don't believe that is because I believe the Apostle Paul had way more faith than maybe all of us put together. And simply trying to faith God into something that we want him to do is bad theology. And uh, we can talk about more, that more sometime over coffee. But the Apostle Paul, a man of extraordinary faith, pleaded with God to do something that would allow him to more effectively do God's will. I mean, what's wrong with that? He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, verse 9. But he said to me, and I know from, uh, for some of us, you know, in your waiting room experience, it would be a major, major breakthrough if God would just say something. If he would say anything, if he would show himself where are you, God? Any kind of response would be great. This is the kind of stuff that bothers me on behalf of, mostly on the behalf of other people. You know, God, if you would just say something, anything, I, I'm ready to take no for an answer, but I'm not sure I want to hear it like an audible voice, and definitely not at night, because that would freak me out. So maybe a gentle whisper in my quiet moment, that'd be okay. And not from the back seat, because I might kill somebody. But if I could just somehow, someday, if I could get some kind of indication that you're hearing me, that you know what's going on. How nice that would be, right, in those moments? And it seems like the first time Paul brought this to God, he heard nothing. And the second time, it seems like he heard nothing. And finally, during his third season of prayer, God, you've got to do something about this. It's like he finally heard God, and God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Uh, this, is a, this is a really famous verse of scripture, often misquoted, misapplied, taken out of context, but doesn't, doesn't diminish its importance. For me, I've found that it, it gains a little clarity if I switch a couple words, but it doesn't really change the meaning. If we read it this way, my power is sufficient for you, and my grace is made perfect in weakness. What God communicated to the Apostle Paul and perhaps maybe what someone here needs to hear this morning. He said, Paul, the answer is no. I'm not going to remove this thing for you. 
but I am going to give you the strength and I'm going to give you the power and I'm going to give you the grace that you need to press on in spite of the fact that it's not going away. Literally, uh, this phrase that we use a lot around church and Christian circles, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is, is made perfect in weakness. Literally, literally, it means my power reaches its full power, its full measure in weakness. My power reaches its full potential when you are the weakest. So now Paul has four things on his list. Painful, humiliating, debilitating, and permanent. Oh, and by the way, Paul, I love you. Oh, and I'm going to use you. People are going to name their children after you for centuries. They're going to name their dog Nero. <laughs> I haven't for, I haven't for, I'm curious how many of you have a Paul in your family. Yeah. I haven't forgotten about you. You're still right where I need you to be. Paul, the answer to your question of will you remove the, this adversity? Will you change my circumstances? Will you ease my pain? My answer to you is no. But no with the promise that my grace will be sufficient for you. So what do you do when you're the Apostle Paul and God, who you're serving with all your heart and soul and risking your life almost every day, says no? And now you have an issue that is painful, humiliating, debilitating, and permanent. What do you do with that? What Paul writes next, and I know um, for some of you who aren't sure what you think about the Bible, uh, it's, it's fine for some things. It's not so great for other things, like, Setting standards of morality, obviously, it's not that's old. And some of the stories and the miracles, come on, Todd, really? And, but I'm telling you, what he writes next, these are the kinds of statements where I'm like, if the whole point of the Bible is to get more people to follow Jesus and to get more people to believe and to get more people to obey the scriptures, if that's the point, I wouldn't have written this. But this is being written by a real person in real life circumstances, by a man who is so in tune with God and the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. Here's what he said. We ask the question, Paul, what are, you, what are you going to do in the waiting room? What are you going to do? Verse 9. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that, what's the purpose? So that Christ's power may rest on me. Here's what he's saying. Since this is not going away, since this is going to continue to get in the way, since this seems to be my new normal, since this seems permanent, since this is going to continue to be something that people associate with me, uh, since people are going to constantly say, you know, I wonder why God hasn't done something about that for him. He must not have enough faith. Here's what I'm going to do about this thing that just won't go away. Here's, what I'm going to, here's how I'm going to respond to this adversity that I wouldn't wish on anyone, and yet God has given it to me. I'm going to boast in it. In other words, I'm going to embrace it. I'm not going to hide from it. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm going to, if God has chosen this for me, I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to own it. I'm going to receive it as if it's coming from the hand of God. He says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that, that's the purpose, so that Christ's purpose may power may rest on me. So what are you going to, what are you going to do, Paul? You've been in the waiting room there. It seems like forever, and there's not much you've been able to do about this whole deal. What are you going to do? I'm going to own it. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to allow it to attach itself to me. Uh, it's interesting, at least I find it interesting. Um, this is one of those times that I wish I'd taken some Greek in school. I took one semester, and it didn't accomplish anything. I can identify most frat houses on a college campus, and that's about it. <laughs> so... I like, to, I like to read what people who know uh, the original languages have to say, what their insights are. Here's the implication when you go directly to the Greek. 
The implication is that embracing your inability is a prerequisite to experiencing Christ's ability. That's what he's saying. Embracing your inability is a prerequisite to experiencing Christ's ability. Paul says, I'm not going to hide from it. I'm not going to cover it up. I'm not going to run from it. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to complain. Because I've come to realize that in order for me to experience the power of Christ, in order to experience the grace that God has promised through these circumstances, I've got to embrace these circumstances. Embracing your ability, your inability, is a prerequisite to experiencing Christ's ability. And here's why this is so important. Because maybe for some of you, for, for all of us at some season of life, when we bump into this thing, when we bump up against those unchangeable circumstances, when we bump up against a thing that's an embarrassment, when we bump up against a thing that's causing us to not be as effective as we want to be and used to be, our tendency is to hide and our tendency is to pretend. What the Apostle Paul is saying, when I got over all of that, when I got over my image management and I embraced this reality and I received it as a gift, I experienced Christ's power in a new way. And he concludes with this in verse 10. He says, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. All of that to say, I think all this hinges on this phrase that appears at the beginning of this passage. This statement right here in verse 7, where we started. Where Paul says, in order to, I was given. That God had a purpose. And whether or not God gave me the thorn, maybe it was from God. Maybe it was from Satan. Maybe it was genetic. Maybe it was something I picked up somewhere. None of that matters. I've decided to view it as coming from God, which means I can trust God's purpose in it. And in order for God's purposes to be accomplished, I have to see it as a gift, not an attack, not an enemy. I need to embrace it instead of resisting it. Uh, And once I've received it as a gift, it had a purpose in order that. And once I received it as a gift with a promise, my grace is sufficient. And then something powerful happened to me that would not have happened any other way. Which brings us to us. If you believe that God could change your circumstances, if you believe that God could somehow miraculously change the state of your marriage, if you believe that God could somehow miraculously erase the files on that computer, if you believe that God could somehow heal your body, heal your loved one, if you believe that God could somehow change your circumstances, but that God has chosen not to, you have the option to receive whatever that is that you're dealing with, to receive it as a gift with a purpose and a promise. If you believe that God could change your circumstances, and you've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, And you can identify with Paul's three seasons because you've had like a dozen of them. And it looks like God is not going to act on your behalf the way that you want him to act. You have the option to choose your attitude and to choose your perspective about whatever it is that you're facing. And you have the option to receive it as a gift with a purpose and a promise. The purpose, yet to be made known. But the promise is my grace is sufficient for you. The reason I say that you have the option because I think I'd be overstepping my bounds and overstepping any scriptural example or mandate. It's, it's not a mandate, but I do believe it's a principle. I think that this is something that God leads us up to the edge of, and as we struggle and you wrestle and you doubt, and at some point 
You come to the place where you realize, I think instead of, of struggling, instead of letting this affect my view of God, I'm going to choose to view this as a gift with a purpose and a promise. And if that butts up against theology that you've grown up with, you know, you know, if you have enough faith, God will answer your prayer. And the reason things aren't going so great is because God's punishing you. You know what you did. And just hang in there. Just honor God. It'll all work out. None of that is actually biblical. It doesn't reflect anything in the lives of any of the people who brought us the New Testament. If you're brought up with this kind of uh, thinking, this is hard stuff, I know. And if you think what I'm teaching is unchristian, I just want to challenge you to go to what the Bible actually says with what biblical writers actually experienced. I want you to put your adversity and your struggle and your waiting room circumstances into a broader context because our Savior Jesus faced a similar situation in his own life. I'm like, not Jesus. Surely he had enough faith. Listen. The Gospels tells us, tell us that at the end of Jesus' ministry, the night before he was crucified, that he was wrestling in prayer with his heavenly Father. And here's what Luke says in Luke uh, 22, verse 41. It says that he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, meaning his disciples. And he knelt down and prayed. It's a very famous prayer, verse 42. Father, if you're willing. <laughs> so in other words, I know you're able. I know that. You are able. I have perfect faith in your ability. He says, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Father, you have placed in my hands a gift that is anything but a gift. And I realize this gift has a purpose that will impact all of humanity. And I know that not only does it have a purpose, but it comes with a promise that somehow you'll sustain me through this. But Father, if you are willing, would you take this gift away from me? Oh, but if you choose to say no, not my will, but yours be done. In some small way, um, but perhaps in some significant and powerful way, when you choose to see your adversity, your negative circumstances, your waiting room experience as a gift with a purpose and a promise, in some powerful, powerful way, you enter into the sufferings of our Savior. And this is why people on the other side of that decision would say, well, yeah, I probably wouldn't choose that again, but I wouldn't give anything in exchange for what I learned. I would never choose that experience again, but I wouldn't give anything for what God used it to accomplish in my life and the lives of a lot of other people. I'd never choose it again, and yet when I look back on the purpose that God had for me that was eventually revealed and the power of God that I experienced in those dark times when I look back, yes, it was a gift with a purpose and a promise. The good news is we have permission to ask that the gift be taken from us. Jesus did. He asked the question. Paul did. He asked a question at least three times. The not so great news is that sometimes God says no. And every single one of us who calls Jesus our Lord is grateful that our Heavenly Father said no to His Son in the garden, aren't we? Where would we be otherwise? And what we learn there, what we learn from the Apostle Paul is that sustaining grace begins, it begins with not my will but your will be done. That sustaining grace is the grace that becomes the power that allows you to put one foot in front of the other one day at a time. It's the grace that begins with, if you choose not to remove this, not my will, but your will be done in my life. So, today, if you're in a waiting room experience, you're in a waiting room season of life, I just want to offer you this. 
when you look at your circumstances, would you be willing to consider them a gift with a purpose and a promise? And I know the purpose is yet to be revealed, but the promise is right now, my grace is sufficient, my power will be perfect in your weakness. It's an opportunity, it's an invitation. Listen to this song. Stop.